<clears throat> so um, I was gone last week. I, be, I was on retreat for 10, 11 days and uh, then came back and I was thinking today about what I wanted to talk about and, uh, and I realized I wanted to talk about mudita. And uh, how many people here don't know what mudita is? Do you know? Great, okay, that helps me, thank you. So mudita is one of the four Brahma-viharas in Buddhism. Brahma-vihara means divine abode, the, the, the realm of the gods, the abode of the gods, divine abodes, um, the Brahma-viharas. And the four Brahma-viharas are metta, um, karuna, mudita, and upekka. And when I said to somebody today, I said, oh yeah, do you know the four divine abodes? You know, metta, karuna, uh, mudita, pekka. And he looked at me, he said, oh yeah, I know. And those are the four dormitories at Spirit Rock, you know, which, is, which is what the dormitories are named after, of course. And, and what that is are the, um, and when I say metta, loving kindness, karuna is compassion, Mudita is um, uh, joy, and Upeka is equanimity. And the Brahma-viharas are four qualities of the heart that can arise quite naturally when the heart is free. They're, they're, the, they're the, the, the Buddha heart, or the real heart, or the true heart, or the awake heart. And they're qualities that come forward, um, and we can, we can do them as practice and that's a very, a very skillful way to, pr to practice loving kindness or practice compassion or practice joy or practice equanimity. And as practices, at some point, one begins to awaken or realize them and they just become part of the heart responding to reality. When the heart is free, when, when our heart and mind is relaxed, that's, those are very natural responses to reality. You know, if somebody's, uh, if somebody's um, you know, if somebody's having a hard time, we feel our kindness for them, our loving kindness, or we feel our care, our compassion, or if somebody, something good is happening for somebody, we feel our joy for them. And of course, the equanimity is part of the balance of heart that comes with meditation practice. That the heart is, it's not, these aren't emotions in the conventional sense. These are states of heart and mind where the heart has been freed. And equanimity, balance, is part of the mind and heart that has been freed. <clears throat> and so I thought, I, w I was really, I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to talk about tonight, given I've talked here for 25 years? Mm -hmm. I was like, and so, and I was thinking about what happened to me recently because I like to speak about something real, something that's authentic for me. And I realized, oh, I'm feeling a lot of mudita. And why am I feeling a lot of mudita, you might think? Um, uh, because I went to a party last night that was for some friends of mine who had gotten married. And I felt so much joy, really, for them and their good fortune and their happiness. And so I thought, okay, I'll talk about mudita. 
And I thought I would also tell you a little about the party so you could get a little <laughs> more, de more detail also. Yeah. <laughs> and the party was Jack Cornfield, who many of you know, who's an old a teacher of mine and an old friend, colleague, and Trudy Goodman, also a friend and colleague, who have gotten married. And it was a big deal and a good, good deal for both of them. And it was fun to be at the party. There were a lot of, you know, it was a private party, so there, there was, wasn't everybody there, but there were a lot of people I knew there, a number of teachers and friends. And, and we were all just, partly we were all so happy because Jack and Trudy are so happy. And it's so good for them to be together. And their joy is a little radiant right now. And I've known both of them for a while. And I, I love both of them. But they have, they're not always radiant, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, they're human beings. And they go up and down. And I've seen them go up and down. And I've seen them be, well, I've seen Jack be in another marriage and go up and down. Because marriages go up and down. And, um, and uh, Trudy, I, I, don't, I haven't known that long, you know. 15 years or so, but I didn't know her when she was married before, but the other day I was, somebody gave me a bunch of old tricycles, they might have even donated them here, and I took a bunch home. Tricycle is a Buddhist magazine that, you know, it's okay, and I like to look through it here and there, and I'm looking through this old tricycle from 1995 or something, and there's true, and it's, oh, it's about marriage, because actually I'm officiating a marriage soon. And so I've been looking at that. And there was a thing about Trudy and, and her then husband. So that was really interesting. That got up my gossipy mind about who <laughs> her past husband had been, and, you know. And, uh, and so it was interesting to, to be there last night and to see them and to see them. And it turned out, and they talked, they did a little, not a, not a formal ceremony, but they did a little talking about what it meant to get married. And they'd known each other 43 years. Now that's a long courtship. You know, <laughs> through a few other marriages, of course, but, but they have, they've known each other 43 years, and it was really, and you know, and they've all both ended up single at a certain time in the last few years, and they kind of fell in love. And, uh, you know, I think the love was probably there on some level, but it went from friend love to romantic love. And, uh, and they're both very happy, and it's lovely to see them that way. And it was fun to see Jack um, that way, because um, Jack, you know, he's a very dedicated and very loyal person, actually. And it was hard that his marriage broke up, but it did. And um, so anyhow, it was, it was really a delight to be there. And we, we all, a number of us were talking about it. We stayed late and just, you know, gabbed a bit. And, uh, and we were all just so happy that they were so happy. And this is one of the, uh, uh, this is the kind of experience that brings one's mudita forward. Mudita, and here, here's a few ways mudita is described. It's appreciative joy 
or empathic joy, or sympathetic joy, or altruistic joy, or gladness, or happiness, or delight, or joy. And um, I like the multiplicity of ways to begin to feel into it or sense into it, because I believe we all know this experience that we call mudita even though we might not have had it pointed out to us, but it's a kind of happiness or goodness or pleasure or joy that we feel when somebody we know, or might not even be somebody we know, but just could be anybody, something good is happening for them or something beneficial or something uh, that makes them happy and we feel our joy for their joy. But it's not just for the joys of others. This is one of the things I like to say. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, oh wait, one second, let me see if I'm gonna read one other thing first. No, read. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh said, some people have said that mudita means sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy, but that is too limited. It discriminates between self and other. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice at, in our own well-being as well. Right? We, we, we feel joy when we see that others are happy, but we rejoice also in our own well-being as well. He says, joy is for everyone. Really, and it's part of our heart and mind when we practice that starts to come forward maybe a little more explicitly, a little more directly, or we can start to recognize it even because we've had the teaching of mudita, so we start to see, oh yeah, this is a component of the heart and mind that's free. <clears throat> And Nyanapanaka Tara, he said, let us teach real joy to men and women. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of dukkha, dukkha, uh, dukkha is the Pali word for suffering, difficulty, uh, dissatisfaction. Life, though full of dukkha, also holds sources of happiness and joy. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy with themselves and to rejoice and uh, and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach uh, people to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. That's a very nice Buddhist line. We, teach, we want to teach people to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. And so it can be very obvious, but it can be a very refined joy or pleasure or delight in the happiness or good fortune of somebody else or our own well-being, our own happiness, our own success, wherever it might be. And there's a beautiful poem from uh, Galway Canal, um, Galway Canal. <clears throat> He said, it's called St. Francis and the Sow. Anybody not know what a sow is? No, yeah, I know. It's a funny word. We don't use it so much. It's a, a female pig. It's a sow. Okay. So the bud, 
the bud, like the bud of a flower. The bud stands for all things. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of a flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began to remember all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way to the fodder and slops of the, to the spiritual curl of the tail from the heart spininess spiked out from the spine and down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue melkin dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 tits into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of sow. That's a beautiful understanding of the self-blessing that we can realize whoever we are, whatever we are, wherever we are, just like the sow. <clears throat> so often one of the things that happens in practice is we begin to rediscover our loveliness. We begin to rediscover the beauty of what's sitting here and in each seat here, the, the magic of what's here, the mystery of what's here, or the beauty of what's here. I could use, I could throw in a lot of different words because we often don't think that about ourselves. We often have um, um, a judging mind that tells us we're not this or we're not that or we should be this or we shouldn't be that or we some kind of way that we go away from the purity is of what's here or or I, I could use a few different words I could say purity or the goodness of what's here or the loveliness of what's here or the magic of what's here or the fact that we're alive at all and that we're conscious at all and we have some idea who and what we are and what what's going on and also it's a great mystery to what we discover it is to be a human being and the fact that we're here together and we're still learning how to be here together and that's all part of the magic and mystery of reality and that we are reality is part of the magic of reality part of the mystery of reality <clears throat> And there are things, let's see if I lost this.
there's a lot of questions these days. Really, when I thought about giving the talk tonight, I thought of a few different things, but I, um, it came, really struck me about the Mudita, but I also, I, very soon I'll give a talk about politics because a lot of people are very involved with politics these days for many good reasons and import. And, uh, and it's helpful to begin to reflect, for all of us, to begin to reflect about, oh, how to practice with the fact that we also live in a, not just a spiritual world, but a political world. But um, one of the things that often blocks our um, joy is all the difficulty in the world, all the, all the suffering in the world and all the different forms of suffering that occur in this world that we're hopefully we are aware of because we need to be aware of it, whether it's political or whether it's economic or whether it's racial or whether it's religious or whether it's what, whatever it might be, countries or cultures or um, um, uh, gender differences or sexual differences, whatever they are, we need to, we're still learning how to become mature human beings together and to wake up together because we are all here together. That is part of the way it is as far as I can tell. And so I was reading something from Mark Morford. He said, because often our a lot of attention in Buddhism is placed on suffering and difficulty, on dukkha, because that's the doorway to the end of the du uh, the end of dukkha. But um, but sometimes it can be a little heavy-handed. And so Mark Morford he said, stop thinking that dukkha, difficulty, is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation, etc., there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. And that's, a, I think that's a really important part of our contemplation of reality because it's amazing, of course, that we're here at all. And then everything is just made up by human beings. I mean, this room was just made by human beings, right? And, and it was human beings with good will or good intention. This church was built by human beings, right, who cared about something. And then the goodness of their hearts manifested in this way, and of course, this, I don't even know anybody know how long the UU has been here, this church. I don't I don't know, but quite a while. And of course we can keep looking around at the world and when you see something beautiful that somebody made, a garden that somebody's made, or a tree that somebody's nourished, and you know, there's so much goodness happening that we don't see or we don't recognize or we forget about because we all get self-involved with our own dukkha, with our own difficulty or the countries or the whatever it might be, whatever level of dukkha it might be. And we don't want to deny the dukkha, but we don't want to deny the goodness of reality also because it nourishes us and it nourishes our practice and it's part of awakening.
And the Buddha said it this way. He said, live in joy, in love, love, even among those who hate. So they said, remember the Buddha was a pretty radical guy. And he says a lot of things that like seem a little too much, like, oh, we can't do that. But the Buddha was just a human being who woke up, who discovered some, what, what part of the potential of what's possible for us as human beings. And he said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, Know the sweet joy of the way. Know the sweet joy of the way. And so part of our practice begins to ask us to investigate our lives and realities and how we're seeing things, how we're feeling things, how we're thinking about things, and to understand the causes and conditions that create how we think and feel and see things and understand the world. And it's one of the reasons I love Sayadaw Uteshaniya is because he's so, he so points to the investigative factor of mindfulness and starting to investigate our reality and discover for ourselves what's true, what's true. True meaning the same word as dharma. What's the dharma? And so one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is what supports joy? What brings joy to each of us? And everybody can just think about what, what brings you joy. What touches you or moves you or makes you happy when you see it or feel it? Or, or who makes you happy? Because it might be a certain person or certain people or certain times or places or different things. I saw a movie that I, I was amazed how much I enjoyed it the other night. Captain Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You liked it. <laughs> I liked it. It was interesting just to see because I was surprised. I don't usually like movies that much. But somebody kept saying, oh, I would like that. I would like it. It's definitely a, a baby boomer movie or something, an old hippie movie. It's, yeah, right. So, you know, and I come from an old hippie culture, so I could, I could go there with it. But it, was, but it was so interesting. The movie was good, but watching the state of consciousness that came with the joy, that's, that's dharma, to watch what happens to our consciousness. And it can happen for us, and it doesn't mean everybody's going to love that movie. I'm not saying that. But think about what you, what touches you, moves you, has changed you, or impacted your consciousness, or in your heart and mind in that way. <clears throat> and there are a few different things that I also really find bring joy. Um, and I'll just say a few of them. Curiosity and wonder bring a lot of joy. Curiosity and wonder bring a lot of joy. The sense of gratitude brings a lot of joy. A sense of awe, not A-W, but A-W-E. Awe brings a lot of joy. And it's when I begin to see things a little more from a different 
not the usual Eugene sense of self way of seeing reality, but a little more something else is here that keeps seeing the beauty of what's here. And I'll, I'll be a little more personal. I keep being a little amazed. I keep feeling a lot of love when I see people these days, and which is not the traditional Eugene way of being in my life. Like, you know, I mean, I'm a nice guy and all that stuff, but, but, but it's, been, it's been way more lately. And I live near the park and walk in the park a lot, and, uh, and I see a lot of people, and I just start feeling all this love. And it's partly, and, I'm, and I'm, it's beautiful, really. It's just like, wow, I, you know, and, and it's just so interesting because there's no reason, right? It's not like I see them, oh, and they look really smart, or they look so, <laughs> no, they all look kind of beautiful for no reason, except maybe they are beautiful, right? And that the reasons aren't what creates the beauty but human beings may be beautiful, period. And so that, for me, that's been really brought a lot of joy to have that experience. This is from, I think his name is Abraham Heschel, Jewish mystical writer. He said, awe, A-W-E, awe is a sense of the transcendent, of the reference everywhere to mystery beyond all things. It enables us to perceive in the world limitations, it, excuse me, it enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. Should I read that again? Yes. Okay. Awe is a sense of the transcendent, of the reference everywhere to mystery beyond all things. It enables us to perceive in the world intima intimations of the divine, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. Now that's a beautiful understanding of something about mudita and the joy that we can experience totally spontaneously. And that's also something to remember about the, the Brahma Viharas. It's, we can, we can um, practice them like we practice a sport, and that's a good thing. But when the sport develops, we don't have to practice. It just happens naturally. The loving kindness can happen naturally. The compassion can happen naturally. The joy can happen naturally. The equanimity can just come naturally. And it's helpful to consider or reflect about what blocks joy, what blocks my joy or your joy or anyone's joy. And in Buddhism, a few different things are pointed at. Definitely the comparing mind, which we all have some we all have minds that compare, and comparing is not a bad thing. It's just bad if we just believe it. It's a great way to analyze things. Oh, is this, is this heavier than this? That's, that's a good comparison to make. If I've got to carry this for 20 days, or this for 20 days, I'm going to go with this one, right? I'm going to go with the lighter. I want to be able to make those kind of comparisons. 
but the comparing mind that is judgmental is not so helpful. That is judging, oh, I'm good and they're bad, or really, they're bad and I'm good is what, you know, or, or vice versa, <laughs> either way. You know, just that, you know, we're always, oh, I could have done it better, you know, I didn't do it as good, or, you know, or I did it the best, I'm the best ever, right? Instead of believing that, we can just see, oh, that's just something the mind does. We don't have to believe that. We can see there's something that's aware of that that is not bound to what it's aware of, right? And I say this many times here, that awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. It's why we want to start to be aware of the awareness itself, because it's aware of everything. It doesn't care good or bad, right or wrong, this or that. It's aware of everything. The awareness is simply open and we can start to relax or rest or find our heart in that openness, in that relaxation. <clears throat> so the comparing mind, also one of the things that blocks joy is a kind of scarcity mentality. There's not enough to go around. And there may be really good reasons to have a scarcity mentality at times, because we may not have had enough at some time, or some place, or some, you know, some point in our life. And so that, that's a very strong impression. But we can be kind to ourselves instead of just believing the scarcity. We can see that that, ha that that um, reaction of there's not enough can just come up like that. We don't necessarily have to believe it. And we can look carefully and see, is there really not enough in some way, shape, or form? And what do we want to do about it if there is not enough, right? That makes sense. But if there is enough, then can we relax right now? Or even, or even if there isn't enough, could we still relax right now, even though we're going to do something about the fact that there's not enough in some way, shape, or form? <clears throat> and really, I'm saying this because joy is undervalued. This level of joy that is pointed at in Mudita is undervalued, right? We're always trying to get something to be joyful or fix ourselves to be joyful, instead of seeing, oh, it's part of our heart and mind that we can begin to realize or that starts to become real as we get here in a very full and real way. This is from Andre Gide. Andre Gide. He said, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make, make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. Okay? Everybody got that? You must embrace joy as a moral obligation. And I don't exactly like that exactly, although I like the push that he's giving it. 
I, I don't like the obligations so much, but I appreciate what he's saying, just like it's really part of our moral obligation to recognize suffering, it's also part of our obligation to recognize joy or goodness or the delight of reality. Hmm. And there, are, there is a formal practice with the mudita that we're not going to do, but it's like the metta practice, like the loving-kindness practice. It's repeating phrases over in one's head and a formal practice, and you do it for a while until it just starts doing itself. And then you, and you start feeling the impact of it. And I'll just say a few of the phrases so you know them. Um, you make its wishes, you know, like, you know, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be free from suffering. These are all part of loving kindness. Um, for mudita, it's, you would wish for someone, may, may uh, you have happiness and the causes of happiness. So if you, and you could think of somebody right now that you care about, and just send them a little mudita. May you have happiness and the causes of happiness or may your good fortune increase. You know, and it could be for your partner or your lover or your friend or your child or your parent or your sibling or somebody else that you work with or you play with or, or somebody you don't know. You can just send them these good wishes. May you have happiness and the cause of happiness. May your good fortune increase. May your happiness and good fortune grow great. And just as I wish to be happy, I wish for your happiness also. Right? And these are just beautiful. These are really Buddhist prayers is what mudita is. It's a certain form of um, prayer or devotion or offering our hearts good wishes to others and to ourselves. And... Um, you know, another way to think about practicing a little in daily life is uh, to think about people who bring you joy. And even right now, think about somebody who brings you joy. And it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be the Buddhist right person, right? It could be the Buddhist right person, but it could be the Buddhist wrong person who brings you joy. And you know, it could, again, like I said, family member, friend, lover, partner, colleague, somebody from a distance. Could be a movie star, I don't care. I, I wrote down a few different people here that, that I felt a lot of mudita for, and the Dalai Lama was one of them. Sun Ra, how many people know who Sun Ra is? A few people, okay, great. Sun Ra, I just always, what a beautiful being, brought a lot of joy. Harold Dalnick, how many people know who Harold Dalnick is? <laughs> I didn't think anybody would. He's an old friend of mine from high school <laughs> in Detroit. <laughs> and, and Harold and I, I, I rarely see him, but we talk about once or a year, once every few years, and I just always have a, he brings a lot of joy. <laughs> totally an odd duck. Harold. Uh, and then Mr. Rogers. Uh, how many people know who Mr. Rogers is? How many people don't know who Mr. Rogers is? Okay, just a few. Okay. 
So Mr. Rogers, this is something, I haven't read this in many years. This is a, from a long time ago. Remember when newspapers were really newspapers? Anybody remember that before the internet? Well, this was when the newspapers were really newspapers, and it was an article about Mr. Rogers written by the TV commentator, uh, I don't know if it's the Chronicle or the Examiner, a guy named Tim Goodman. He said, Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television. <laughs> and you really want to remember Mr. Rogers. I know Mr. Rogers because I would watch Mr. Rogers with my daughter when she was small. And at first I was like, I didn't like, I didn't like kids' shows at all. But as I watched Mr. Rogers, I'm like, oh, this guy is the real thing. So this guy, Tim Goodman's writing, Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television. That point just can't be refuted. <laughs> there is no better spiritual leader for this God-forsaken medium than Fred Rogers. <laughs> and he's writing this, celebrating the 30 years of him on TV. He said, think about it, in the world of television, is there anyone more Zen than Mr. Rogers? No chance. Five minutes with this man and you're down to 14 heartbeats per minute. <laughs> he is a de-stressing icon, a man who takes his time to finish his sentences, thinks before he speaks, and when he finally utters something, it's slow, sweet, and warm. Grown men suddenly want footy pajamas and some cocoa after a chat with Mr. Rogers. Once you bask in his soothing rays, it's clear he's being wasted on the youth. Let's move this man to prime time and comfort this gun, this crazy gun-toting, crack-addled, caffeine and pipeline-fed nation. And then he goes on and on about Mr. Rogers. And he very he was great to watch on TV because he was so there, he was so present, like he'd been practicing for his life. And who knows what he had done, but he was just for real. He was a for real person. And quite kind, quite warm. Oh yeah, there was another funny. He said years later. Uh, Mr. Rogers won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Emmy, Emmy people, and, uh, and uh, he was on the television critics something, or he was on the Emmys, and he's, um, he gets a lot of respect from people. On the Emmy broadcast, he asked, and it's his signature move, he asked for everyone to stop, be quiet for 30 seconds, and to reflect on a beloved one or someone who has been instrumental in supporting them in their life and their work. And he goes on to say, Tim Goodman says, all the big stars bowed their heads. Do you know how long 30 silent seconds on TV feels like? <laughs> It's not like you can resist the man. He tells you to take 30 and you do it. <laughs> so, so look around and see who moves you, who, who, who touches your heart, right? Whether it's Mr. Rogers or, <laughs> 
I can't. I, I, I don't even know who else to say on TV. I don't watch so much, you know. The Warriors definitely touched my heart <laughs> in the last few years. No, it's true, it's true. And I, I'll, I'll, be, I'll back it up dharmically, too. This is no bullshit about the Warriors. <laughs> meaning, meaning they were a great team, but they were a team with an incredible amount of integrity. And you saw it in, in those guys. And it was beautiful to see it. And really, a lot of, lot of joy that they brought, not just with the winning, which I believe I liked, but, but also with who they, who they are. Right, and really, I have a Jewish Buddhist word. They're menches, right? Which means, which means they're people of integrity, and that's what we need in all of the public world because we don't get enough of that, in my opinion. <clears throat> so practicing means to begin to recognize the goodness of reality, of the truth, of the Dharma, of of ourselves of what's sitting here in each seat, right? Rumi says it this way, he says, do not sit long in sadness, my friend. When you go to the garden, do you look at the thorns or the flowers? Spend more time with the roses and the jasmine. Or my important Buddhist teacher, Ryokan, he said, he said, the bamboo grove in front of my hut Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it, right? That's somebody who knows how to be present in this moment, because this is the only moment there is, which is something that's so hard for us to get, so hard for us to understand. What, is it a question or, not yet. I'm, I'll try to save some time, but I'm talking a lot tonight. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I will. I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll open it for questions, yeah. So there's one other piece I'll just mention, which is the joy of the Dharma, of practice. It uh, brings me joy. It doesn't matter if I'm happy or sad, meaning that's not, I don't mean I don't, I'd rather be happy than sad. Come on, I'm just, but it's up and down life. It goes every which way. It's good and bad. It's right and wrong. I'm happy and sad. But practice is what allows everything to be good, right? Because we're not in control of reality. And we're not going to be in control of reality. We can have our input. Our input's very important. And, and we should make this world as good as we can but it still won't make it perfect for what my uh, ego wants it to be. But the Dharma is something quite beautiful and the truth of what's sitting here is already quite beautiful and quite true and quite real. And so from Shantideva says, as a blind person feels when he or she finds a pearl in the dustbin so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening arising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, 
the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind and heart when it is agitated, and the sun that dispels darkness, the butter that made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. you have any comments, questions, life, not life, you want to start? Just turn the mic towards you, turn it around, the whole thing, yeah. Thank you, yeah. I'm not asking you, I should look at you. Uh, yeah, for this. Chris, um, I guess when you read the Ruby quote in particular, I was feeling this sort of uh, dissonance between the roses and the thorns. Um, and it seems like often we're searching yeah. for joy or happiness to get away from sadness. And yeah, yeah. I wonder if you might talk a little about how the two sure. coexist in the same moment. Even a beautiful building like this could have had a lot of like labor exploitation with, uh -huh. in building something yeah. beautiful. Yes. Like, yeah. Okay, well, wait, stay up here. We may. A great question you're asking, and it's really an important point you're pointing at about the paradox of reality. Because, yeah, I don't know, and we don't know, but it, it's true. Anything might have happened when this building got built. There might have been a lot of good intention, and that good intention may have been veiled by the unconsciousness, whether it's whatever it might be, labor or economics or whatever circumstances that create um, you know, this kind of us and them division. And that may be part of what is here also. And we don't, and we don't wanna pretend that doesn't happen. We wanna see that quite clearly. And we wanna also see the good intention also. And the paradox we also wanna see because I believe paradox are a really important part of waking up because it's starting to see reality. It's not just one or the other or this or that, but it's, it's the totality of what's here. And then we can start to come forward with hopefully a more skillful, kind, creative, intelligent, heartful response. So I appreciate what you're pointing at. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Please. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Kitty. I just wanted to say, um, I, I just noticed on the way in tonight, I don't know how long I've been walking under this banner that's hanging outside that door there. If it's brand new, maybe, or if I've been ignoring it, but there's a beautiful quote on about gratitude from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I guess was a Unitarian. Uh -huh. um, so I just wanted to mention it and invite people to actually stop and look at it, maybe. Uh -huh. Yeah, it hasn't been there that long, but it's there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, gratitude, beautiful, please. You, have a question? you want Jim? to start with your name? Jim. Yeah, thank you. Um, and point, point the mic right at your mouth. Yeah, thank you. There you go. <laughs> that was good. Um, I have often thought that the, and you, you sometimes quote this, 
Um, the 8th century Chen master, when asked why a lifetime of practice, he talks about to have an appropriate answer or appropriate response. Yeah. And I tie it to the <coughs> divine invokes. Mm -hmm. In the face of suffering, right. the appropriate response is karuna, or compassion. Right. And in the face of another person's joy, the appropriate response is, is sympathetic joy. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, I, I, I would, and I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I would be careful to say it that way. Because then it sounds like something we're supposed to do is have that appropriate response. Because maybe sometimes when there's compassion, when, when there's suffering, maybe the suffering's not so bad. Like if, if you have a child and you raise a child, they suffer. And the suffering is part of what it takes to grow up. And so I, I just want to, I like to be careful not saying, oh, here's the appropriate right way. This is the, the right answer. Appropriate means it's in the moment. And in that moment, it could be this or that could be the appropriate answer, not just one way. True. Although, just even hearing, I would think any time my child is suffering, uh -huh. regardless of the degree, uh -huh. my appropriate response would be compassion. Oh, okay, so that may be, that's lovely, but the compassion may not be to do anything. True. Right, my okay, okay, is. as long as we're, we're clear. Second question? Sure. Um, you haven't been here for a while, so you get two you. questions. I have a whole, I've been gone a whole year. I've been asking years worth of questions. Regarding the, the sympathetic joy also being applying to myself, right. which I love very much, I'm assuming that also the compassion and the loving kindness. Sure, of course. Myself. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, again, when the heart wakes up, it responds naturally to what's appropriate, what's needed, what's true. And that's why dharma is such a good word, because the translation for dharma is truth. Okay, thank you. Please. Hi. Hi. My name is Stace. I'm thinking about what blocks joy and what frees it. And um, I think I heard through some of what you were saying kind of the difference between joy for no reason versus conditioned joy or joy for something like phenomena or a person or a relationship. Um, Wait, I'm not clear what, what you heard the difference between joy for no reason and joy in a person. Well, what, what I heard or what I'm thinking about in my own life is, sure. you know, a partner that I had for many years that brought me a lot of joy, that still brings me a lot of joy, but the partnership is over. Mm -hmm. Or my dog, who's brought me the most joy ever, who's 12 and right. will pass. Right. Um, so these, the clinging that can sometimes really bind the joy and turn it into suffering. Uh -huh. And then these moments where it frees itself or the practice helps it free. Sure. Um, so I don't know the question there, but it reminds me of a quote that I like a lot that I thought I would share too. Sure, great. Um, I can't remember, I 
actually, who said it, may, some of them may know, but um, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Yeah, beautiful. It's William Blake, yeah, who was definitely some kind of weird Zen master in a long time ago <laughs> in another culture. But really, that's such a beautiful. Can you say it again, please? He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Yeah, that's a beautiful understanding of the kind of joy, the, the um, deeper sublime joy that's pointed to in Buddhism, right? And it's eternity's sunrise. What a beautiful image for that. And yeah, it's a great. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Please. Hi, I'm Emily. Hi, um, a question that always comes up for me around this is like, okay, but how? Like, how do we do that? <laughs> how do you do what? Um, like, okay, cool, sympathetic joy sounds awesome, compassion sounds awesome. Like, I'm not, when I'm not feeling that, uh -huh, right. curious. Or like that poem just to have like, yeah, that sounds great, but like what if I am like finding myself to join? Uh -huh. I think one answer that I think of for myself is just awareness. Uh-huh. Like if I notice the clinging then sometimes it can that can help. Right. I'm like curious if they Well, just um, watch out for any judgment about clinging. Right? We just wanna see what happens. See and so be aware of the clinging and be aware of you can play with it, you can investigate it a little more, be a little curious about it. Well, what are you clinging to? Who's clinging? And when I say who, I could also say what's clinging? Where does that come from? Because you're aware of it, right? And the awareness is not what's clinging, but you're aware of something clinging, correct? So you want to start to be curious and see what comes and let yourself cling because that starts to show you more about who and what and the causes and conditions that we end up calling clinging. Is that clear? Yeah, so in my language, play with it in that way. And that's why you can cling totally. It's one of the paradoxical Buddhist teachings I like to give. Really, I mean, if you can let go of anything, let go, great. But if you can't, don't be hard on oneself, judgmental of oneself. Be curious. Oh, what's happening that I go like this? Because we all do at times. And we want to see, oh, what is that? Instead of thinking, oh, I'm doing it wrong now, or I've got to do it, I've got to have the appropriate response, or anything like that. Okay? Great. Okay, thank you. Back, yeah. Hi, my name is Olga. I just wanted to remind for these situations that um, it's all about cravings and aversions. They all come together. Uh -huh. If there is something we don't like, there is always aversion in the rise. Uh -huh. If something that is pleasant and joyful, we want it more. We crave for that more. Sometimes, I agree with you, but sometimes for both of those. 
both of those yeah. things. I think so that ways where we find um, unpleasant things um, a part of life and they're equal to pleasant things and uh. as well we will learn to enjoy them uh -huh. um, that brings us the balance and uh, we'll, we see the reality of life as mm. it is and as perfect and beautiful so, so I missed one thing in the middle there. You said when we say say it again. The middle part of what you said. Um, I think when we learn to see uh, the joyful and painful things as a reality of life, I right. mean as uh, equal. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, that. Yeah. Then we learn the real beauty of life. Very good. So what you're pointing at is that equanimity that you're seeing through. Because then you see the good and the bad, the pleasant, the unpleasant. That's not what's impacting your consciousness. There's an equanimity there. And the equanimity has its own, a more sublime joy. We feel it. We don't, it's not ignorance. Right. We believe yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay, last one. You, you up? Robin. Yeah, I would love to keep going, but the Unitarian Church uh, is not equanimous if we go too late. So, <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I wanted to hear that thing again about the endless buffet and joy that's available to everyone that you read. I, I thought that was genius. You put the page down. Okay, there is. Which one? Uh, um, it, it ended. It is the endless buffet of joy that's available to everyone. Oh, he is a feast of joy. Yes. So this is from Shanti Deva. Um, as a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life the tree that gives shade to us when we roam for, uh, when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our heart and mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. And so really he's speaking from his awakening here and it's a beautiful understanding of what can happen for any and all of us as we wake up and begin to see the potential of the human experience. Shanti Deva. Let's sit for a moment before we end tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.